That was uh, one of my favorite songs growing up in church. Anybody else favorite song growing up in church? Yeah. You know, I did some, uh, some Google research this past week, and I found out that this song, Amazing Grace, are you ready for this? It's performed 10 million times annually. Isn't that crazy? Like, doesn't that just blow your mind when you think about that? 10 million times annually. It's appeared on over 11,000 albums. Now, the author of the song, John Newton, uh, came from a life where he was just, uh, he was a really bad dude. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. He was, a, he was a former slave trader, and he tells about his conversion story that while he was on a ship uh, that was caught in this horrendous storm, the boat was about to sink because it was taking in water, and Newton says that he began to pray at that moment. He began to pray and ask God to save them. And as he was praying, the cargo on the ship miraculously shifted to fill a hole in the ship's hull, and the ship drifted to safety. This line from that song that we just sang from that incident comes from that. It says, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Its grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I love that. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, Newton, John Newton, the guy who wrote this song, realized that God was giving him a second chance at life. He realized that God, realized that God had showed him grace. Grace means, simply means, the undeserved, unmerited forgiveness in favor of God. It basically means that God has given us a second chance. It's, it's, both, it's amazing both because of how good the gift is and, and really how much we utterly fail to deserve it. That's why the opening verse of the song says, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. See, that's the message of forgiveness and redemption. And that's what John Newton wanted everybody to understand, is that, that regardless of sins committed, regardless of where you're at in life, we can be delivered from despair through the mercy and grace of God. What Jesus did on the cross is greater than our sins. Amen? Amen. And that's good news. I mean, that's the gospel message right there, the good news that Jesus has come and he's paid the penalty for our sins. Unfortunately, I think many people today, even people in the church, struggle with this idea of grace, right? Because we begin to ask questions, well, how could God forgive me? I mean, all of the things that I've done in my life, how in the world could God love me? Or let's ask the question in the context of what we've been studying the last week through the book of Hosea. If you were with us last week, we, we introduced the story of Hosea the prophet and how God asked Hosea to do something that was so radical, so out of the box, something so unique that he hasn't asked anyone to do before or since. God comes to Hosea, who is a prophet of God. And a prophet is just somebody who, who kind of speaks the word uh, uh, to, to, of God to his people. And he comes to him and says, Hosea, I want you to marry a prostitute. And he proceeds to tell him that he will have children with her, but she's going to continually, continually cheat on you and be unfaithful to you. But God tells Hosea that I want you to continue to remain faithful, and I want you to continue to uh, love Gomer was her name. And pursue her for relationship. And so when you look at that story, you look at that context, we ask the question, why would any woman 
repeatedly leave her loving husband in the security of their home to go sell her body to strangers and leave her loving husband uh, at home and just be kind of like a streetwalker is what we talked about last week. And I think the reason that, that she does that is the reason that many of us don't understand this idea of grace is, is we just don't, we, we can't comprehend it, we can't fathom it. Like, can God really love me that much? Does God really pursue after me? Does God really desire to have this type of relationship with me? Right? His grace is so amazing. Is what happens is we tend to, we tend to doubt it, don't we? Right? We either tend to doubt it or we... Or, uh, or kind of like what we, we, we talked about when I prayed this, this morning, uh, we, we, we don't see, like, like John Newton, he writes that word, he says, he saved a wretch like me. I think oftentimes we just don't think we are that bad of people, right? So, so one of two things, we, we either think we don't, we don't like God can't love us that much, or we just, hey, I'm not really that bad of a person. And so what we do is we tend to focus on the voice of Satan or others that are telling us that we're nothing, that we are useless, that that God doesn't love you. We listen to the voice of self-doubt and we hold on to our guilt and our shame. We hold on to our past and we start believing that, that this is how God uh, feels about me because it's the way I feel about myself. And yet, this is exactly why the story is here. God is teaching us through the book of Hosea that he is pursuing us in grace. And the reason God asked Hosea to do this is because Hosea's marriage to Gomer is going to parallel God's marriage to his people. And we kind of talked about this last week. We introduced this idea. And what God is saying is that rather than just go and tell my people that they've committed adultery against me, he's asked Hosea, hey, I want you to actually live it out in your own life. I want you to live through the heartbreak that I experience constantly. I want you to know what it feels like to pursue a lover only for them to not respond to your advances. I want you to know what that's like. I want you to feel what it's like to be crushed and rejected. And then you will be able to clearly communicate my message to my people. Now, as I said last week, there are many images and themes throughout Scripture to describe our relationship with God. And the most profound image is this image of marriage. And what God is saying is, is that you cannot understand our relationship with God strictly under the relationship of sheep and shepherd or a, a king of subjects or father and son. As important as those relationships are, and they are all biblical and they all tell us something about our relationship with God, they don't exhaust because in a way, they don't go deep enough for what God really wants for us. And so this passage, this theme of marriage tells us that God wants a relationship with us that's so intensely personal, intimate. I want you to think about that for a second, right? That God wants a relationship with us that is so intensely personal, intimate, and at the same time, that's so binding and enduring that he says, you cannot understand me or my love for you or relationship unless you understand me as your bridegroom. Unless you understand me as your bridegroom. It's not enough just to understand me as your king or your shepherd or your father. You really don't know what a relationship is about unless you see me as your husband. 
And this is all throughout Scripture. I mean, you can look through the Old Testament Scripture, the New Testament Scripture. Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 9. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5, God says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife. See, we are the bride of Christ. So I want you to think about that for a second, right? We are the bride of Christ. I want you to think about what does it take, if we are the bride of Christ, what, what does it take to have a good marriage, right? So, so let's think about that for a second, right? For, first of all, in order for us to have a good marriage, marriage has to be top priority, right? It has to be the top priority in our life. If you are married, then your relationship with your spouse has to be the number one priority in, in human relationships, Right? It, can't be a, it can't be a friend, it can't be somebody else, it can't be a co-worker. It's got to be your spouse has to be the most important thing in your life, humanly speaking. Nothing can come before it. And if you do, if you do give it this type of priority, and only if you do, then your marriage will be strong. And I want you to think about this for a second. Right? If, if, if you give it that type of priority and your marriage is that strong, then, then regardless of what's going on, outside of your marriage, right, in your, in your work world, in your, your life, whatever it is, if things are going bad in every area of your life, but your marriage is strong, you can go out into the world in strength. But if everything in your life is going well, work is going well, things you're just knocking it out of the park, but at home, things are not going well, and life is miserable at home, then you move out into the world in weakness. It's the way it is. And God is saying that I am the ultimate priority. I've got to be first. I can't be an add-on. I'm not a booster to help you get over the hump uh, when you have troubles. I'm not just a vitamin supplement that you add, you know, in the morning or in the evening, right? Your relationship with me must be number one priority. Everything else is negotiable. Nothing else can come before that. Secondly, marriage is a relationship of intimacy, of intimacy. Marriage is the most intimate human relationship in a couple of ways. First way is knowledge. Right, think, think about this for a second. You can hide stuff from other people pretty well, can't you? I mean, you can have a friend, you can have coworkers, and you can hide things from them pretty well, and they really don't know who you are. In fact, believe it or not, you can hide stuff from yourself. You agree with that? Absolutely, right? We've talked about this before. We all have blind spots. We all think more highly of ourselves, right? I mean, listen, before I was married, I thought I was the most selfless person in the world. And then when I got married, I found out differently. I was like, wait a minute. What's going on here, right? Because my wife knows me. She knows me all about me. Your spouse has a front row seat to who you really are. But it's also the most intimate of all relationships because of the depth of passion and the expression of love that you showed each other. And so I want you to think about this, right? So when God says, I want a relationship that is like a marriage, what he's saying is, is you can't know me from afar. Can't do it. I've got to be in every nook and cranny of your life. And so many times what we do is we say, I want to give my life I want to give my life to God. I want to surrender myself to Jesus. But wait a minute, Jesus, not this part of my life. I'll, I'll hold on to this. 
I once had it, heard it described by somebody. I thought it was really good. He's like, it's, it's, imagine like it's rooms in your house, right? And instead of giving God the whole house, like your body is rooms in a house, instead of giving God the whole house, what we do is say, okay, God, I'll give you this part of the house. I'll give you this part of the house, but I want, I want this part just for myself, right? And so we kind of hold back. And God's like, no, 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 no. You can't hold back. I, I, I want all of you. I don't want just head knowledge. I don't want you to just know about me. I don't want you to just know facts about Jesus. or about. I, I, I don't want you to do that. I want you to, to, to know me. I want you to experience my love, right? We talked about this last week. I want the gospel to move from your head to your heart. We want you to experience that. Third, marriage has the power to influence your life the most. Because of the nature of the relationship, listen, your spouse has massive power to shape your self-worth and value. Right? Your, your spouse, with their words, has the ability to affirm you and to heal you. I want you to, again, think about this for a second, right? It's, it's nice whenever you receive compliments from other people, isn't it? Like, doesn't it make you feel good? It's like, oh, yeah. Somebody comes to you and says, man, you're a really kind person. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. I've got you fooled, <laughs> Right? But, 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 but when your spouse affirms you, when your spouse comes up to you and says, man, you know what, that's really sweet, man, you're, you're, you're a kind husband, you're a loving father, that, that chest puff, you know, like, that, that does something to you, right? That, like, that lights you up. You see what I'm saying? I mean, your, your spouse has that kind of power. And what God is saying when he says that I am like your bridegroom. Listen, the best marriage, you can go out and find the best marriage in the world. And it is just a dim hint, a dim hint compared to God's love and marriage to us. He's saying, I love you. Listen to me, God is saying, I delight in you. And if we come to understand this in our mind and in our heart that God truly loves us, that he is pursuing us, that he delights over us, That has the power, listen to me, that has the power to be the most life-changing and influential thing in your life. I mean, it will transform you from the inside out. And this is what God desires. This is why he pursues us in grace. And so when we move to Hosea chapter 3, if you you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Hosea chapter 3. That's where we're going to be at today. Hosea is in the Old Testament. It's uh, right after the book of Daniel. So I said last week, if you open up your Bible and you kind of guess the middle of the Bible and you probably go to open up in Psalms or Isaiah, just flip a little bit right and you'll find Hosea. It's a small book. It's a great book. I love this book. It's been good to study through it. Women, you're in for a treat because I know Anchored in Christ is going to be studying this starting Tuesday, right? Yeah. So you guys are in for a treat. In for a treat. So... God tells Hosea in chapter 3, this is what he says. The scripture is going to be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. And this is so fascinating. Listen, listen to what God tells Hosea to do right here. It says, And the Lord said to Hosea, to me, Go again. Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another and is an adulteress. Now, listen, we know from last week, if you were with us, that by the time we get to chapter 2, right? So chapter 1, God says, go 
and marry this woman, Gomer. She's, she's, she's a prostitute. She's gonna, you're going to have children by her, but she's going to cheat on you, and she's going to do all these crazy things. But, but when we know when we get to chapter 2, like, I mean, things have gotten really bad. Like, she's lost her mind. She's basically become a sex addict. I mean, she's a streetwalker going after her lovers, and we wonder how could it get any worse than that. But believe it or not, here in chapter 3, it does. It does get worse because we see here in chapter 3 that she is up for sale. Right? The text tells us that she is with another lover. And so apparently she has fallen so far into debt. A couple of things have happened. I, I don't know, but apparently she's fallen so far into debt that she has no way out except to sell herself. That's all she can do. And I don't mean to be crass about this, but I mean, if, if, we're, if we're being realistic about this, another option could be that maybe one of her lovers was her pimp. And he thought maybe she was done and used up, and so he was going to cut his losses and put her up for sale. I, I don't know. I mean, I want you to get the, the picture of this. This is how bad things have gotten for Gomer. I mean, it's as far down as a person can fall. It's as bad as it can be. It's as broken as it can be. It's as miserable as it can be. And God says, this is the image of what my relationship with human beings is like. I want you to feel the weight of that for a second. He says, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. Now, that, that phrase, sacred raisin cakes, were the delicacies that were, were uh, served at idol feasts. Right, so you'd have all these idols you know, that people would kind of make for themselves, and they would worship these idols, these images made of stone and wood or whatever they made them of, and then they would serve these, these delicacies, these raisin cakes. And what God is saying to Hosea is that when your wife puts herself in the arms of another lover and commits adultery, it is the same thing when I love my people when I love human beings and they put other things before me and they worship their idols. And you think, well, I don't, I don't have idols, Aaron. I don't, I don't have stoned images or, or wooden carved images up in my house. And what they're essentially doing is they're running into the arms of another lover. And I want you to know, man, that Scripture makes it very clear. All throughout Scripture you see that that it describes God, one of his attributes is that he is a jealous God. Now, when we hear that, we, we, we automatically go to the negative side of jealousy because as human beings, jealousy for us is a negative attribute, right? It's, it's, it's not, but, but God's jealousy, listen to me, is not like our human jealousy, okay? Because of sin, because of our sin, we get jealous because we want something, right, that doesn't belong to us. We see somebody has something, and we're jealous, and we're like, I want that. We covet that. We want that. We're jealous of that. Our jealousy is, is a selfish ambition type of jealousy. I'll, I'll give you an example, okay, from, from my own personal life. When Robin and I started dating, uh, we dated off and on for about six months, and uh, to be honest with you, she was a little bit more invested in the relationship than I was, and I wasn't quite ready to make that commitment, right? 
And so we had made the decision. I was stupid, I know. I, I was very slow. But, uh, <clears throat> but so we made a decision that we would date other people. Now, I didn't say that because I wanted to date other people. I didn't care. But it's one of those things you say that you really don't mean, right? And so then uh, a few weeks go by, and she's like, yeah, I'm going on a date. Excuse me? <laughs> what? I kind of perked up a little bit. She's like, yeah, I'm going on a date. I started asking, who? With who? Where, where are you going? You know, where, where does he take you? And I started asking all these questions, and I found myself in that moment having that jealousy. Like, like I, I don't want you to go, I, I want you to myself. You know, so I, I started kind of having that, that, that jealousy, and I was frustrated. I didn't want Robin to go on the date with anyone. I remember praying and saying, God, please make this dude a, just a horrible, horrible person. You know, like, like, so she sees, you know, like, I, I really, I was like, please, I, please, I was like praying against this date, you know, I don't want her to have a good time on this date. And, and you see how it all worked out, right? Ten years, eleven years later, we're, we're together. And we, but, but here's the thing, man, I, that, that, that's, I say that to say this, that's human jealousy. That's human jealousy. It's, it's, that's this divisive. But listen to me, God's jealousy is different. God's jealousy is protective. Listen, the Bible says that God created us. We are His. And so He is protective of our devotion. He wants, he wants us all to Himself. He doesn't want us to go, right, and, and give ourselves to another lover. He wants us all for Himself because He made us. And so I want you to listen just from the book of James, which is in the New Testament. You don't have to turn there, and it's not going to be on the screen, but you can write it down if you want to and look at it later. But listen to what James, the half-brother of Jesus, writes uh, in chapter 4, 4 through 6. And he's writing in this context of, of loving the world, right, of, of kind of chasing after lovers or chasing after idols. And he says, this is what he writes. He says, "Your." I'm reading from the message, by the way. And so I love the way this reads. It says, you're cheating on God. If all you want is your own way, flirting with the world every chance you get, you end up enemies of God in his way. And listen to this next phrase. He says, God is a fiercely jealous lover. Isn't that that awesome? And what he gives in love, listen to this, what he gives in love is far better than than anything else you'll find. And what God is saying is, is that until we understand this image of marriage with God, we will not understand the impact of our wrongdoing. See, until we understand that we are married to God, until we understand what it does, that I am a sinner, that I am a wretched sinner saved by the grace, until we see that, it's not gonna, we're not going to understand the impact of our wrongdoing. Listen, when the person you love most is putting him or herself in the arms of another lover, that's, that's crushing. That's crushing. And unfortunately, a lot of us in this room know what that feels like. You know, I, I don't share this... I very rarely share this, and I don't know how many of you even know this, but I was married prior to Robin. And I know what this feels like. I know what it's like to have the person you love put their self in the arms of another lover. I know what it's like. It's crushing. It's heartbreaking. 
And so when we talk about idols, when we talk about putting other things before God, what, what do we mean? Like, we, I know we don't have these idols. It means that, that when something, anything, anything at all is more important than God in your life. Anything. Right? So, so if making money is more important to your self-image or who you are than your relationship with God, then it's an idol. If your looks or your achievements are more important, then that's what brings you joy. Hey, I did this, or I accomplished this, and that's what brings you joy. If getting married, or being married, or having kids, if that's more important than God, if there's anything that's more important than God in your life, then that's your real God. That's your idol. I mean, I want you to think about Gomer for a second, right? She, she, she was a sex addict, right? I mean, she, she was empty inside, and what Gomer was doing was she was trying to fill an emptiness that was inside of her, and she was driven to a false sense of security. She kept running to her other lovers thinking, well, they'll, they'll fill me up. They'll give me a sense of satisfaction. That's what I'm looking for. That's what and every time she would do that, she would just feel more and more and more empty. And that's what idols do. They give us a false sense of security. They think that this is what I need. This is what I want. And then when we get that, it's never satisfying, is it? It's never satisfying. And what God is saying is is that if you make anything more important than me, then you're doing the same thing. You are running and putting yourself in the arms of another lover. And you're looking for that thing to fill fill you up, and to give you something that, that they can't give. And what God is saying is, is, listen, idols can't save you. Your money can't save you. Your children can't save you. Your spouse, the, these things cannot save you. They only seek to enslave you. That's what it did to Gomer. It enslaved, like she's, it, she is being sold. So we think, man, if money's my idol, man, we're going to keep working and keep working and keep working until we build up a, a stockpile, and we're never going to be satisfied. It's going to enslave us. If you think, you know, achievements, are you going to just keep going up, up, and it's never going to satisfy you. It's going to enslave you. That's what idols do. They enslave you. And God says, only I can save you. Only I can do that. So let's see how God heals his marriage. Let's see what it cost him. Let's see what he asked Hosea to do here. He says, so, so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. Now we read that and we think, what, what in the world is going on here, right? I mean, did he just have this stuff laying around in his house or something? I, I don't know, right? But, but when you add all that up, what you have is the price of a slave in the ancient culture. Now, I want you, again, I want you to imagine this with me for a second, okay? Because this, this would have more than likely been a public auction. Right, so you'd have been in the middle of town, the center, right? And you'd have had somebody, and you'd have had all these people or things up on this stage. And, and so I want you to imagine that, that Gomer is up on a stage, and she would have probably been naked, okay? So that people could see what they're buying, and she would have been embarrassed. She would have been filled with guilt and shame and despair. And I want you to imagine for a second that the bidding starts, right? The auctioneer, he starts off, and, 
And then Gomer hears the voices, right? Here's five shekels, seven, ten. And then, and then all of a sudden, Gomer starts to hear a, a voice that's recognizable, right? She's like, wait a minute. I recognize that voice. That's, that's my husband. What is he doing here, right? Like, why is he even here? And then she hears 15 shekels, a homer, a lethic of barley. And she's thinking, what, what, what are you doing here after all I've done? Why does he even want me after all this? And she's probably thinking to herself, oh, okay, I get it, I, I get it. He, he probably wants revenge, right? He probably wants to just make me his slave. But I want you to notice in verse 3 how tenderly Hosea speaks to her. And this is, this is kind of hard to read, um, but, but it's, this is what he says. He says, then I told her, you are to live with me many days. You must not be a prostitute or be intimate with any man. And I will live with you. I mean, this is a beautiful picture right here because what Hosea is doing is he, he does not buy her back for revenge. Right? He, and he's not content to just bring her into his house and they just live together. You know, you know how sometimes married couples, they just kind of, they're like roommates. They just kind of live in the same house, right? He's not content with that. He's not, he's not, he's, he doesn't want her as just a slave. But what Hosea is saying is, is, I want to dwell with you. He says, I want to do the hard work. And it would be hard work of rebuilding our lives together. Hosea shows us what love costs. I mean, listen, Hosea is paying an enormous price. Not only did he pay a financial cost, Right, which the word that's used there, the word that says bought, is the same word for redemption. Right, so, so not only is he paying a financial cost, but listen, Hosea is paying a, a, a social and cultural price as well. I mean, listen to me, if, if you had friends, and you're saying, I'm going to go to the auction, I'm going I'm to go buy my wife back. What would your friends say to you? After, after they know, right, they know, they, what, what are you out of your ever-loving mind, right? Are you, are you on something? Are you crazy? Right, I mean, they'd be like, you are a fool. What are you thinking, taking this woman back? Now, now what's interesting is we're not told what happens after chapter 3, this kind of, this, this image of this marriage kind of ends and we go on to different things. So we're not really told what happens, but, but I read that most commentators believe that Gomer, after this instance, was finally able to find rest in her husband. And the image of Hosea is a picture of God. See, Hosea was in love. God's in love. Hosea was betrayed. God's been betrayed. Hosea pays an enormous price. God pays an enormous price. What price did God pay? Right, where, where do we see God in Scripture come into the marketplace, come into the center of town, and pay the price to get His people back? The answer is in verse 4 and 5 of our text. It's a prophecy is what it is. 
He says, for the Israelites will live many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without effort or idol. Afterward, the Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, if you don't know much about the Bible, you read that and you think to yourself, okay, well, David's not Jesus, right? So, so what's he saying here? And, and if you read this and you know about the Bible, you know, wait a minute, this is after David. Like, David's dead. So this must be a descendant of David. And it is. It's Jesus Christ who is our bridegroom. See, in Jesus Christ, God entered the world. He entered the marketplace. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And what Jesus did is He clothed our nakedness. We were, like, we were like Gomer. We were naked. We were full of guilt and shame. Our sin had enslaved us. And Jesus clothed our nakedness with his righteousness. Because on the cross, Jesus died to pay the price to buy us back. He redeemed us from the sin that enslaves us. Right? Jesus comes and he says, I laid down my life for you. All of your sin, all of your wickedness, your evil heart, your guilt, your shame, your problems, they come onto me. When Jesus was on the cross, every bit of our sins, past, present, and future, were put on Jesus. And the wrath of God, his anger, was directed towards his son. That's grace. Right? Jesus diverted God's wrath from us and put it on himself. He redeemed us. He buys us back. That is grace. Do we understand this? 1 Peter 1, 18 19 says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood. Galatians 3, 13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having been a curse for us. Jesus became a curse for us. Which means we're no longer obligated to pay the penalty of sin because Christ paid it for us. Right? That's grace. God pursues us in grace. Do you understand that? That God delights in you, that he is pursuing you, that he wants a relationship with you. And you see, to the degree that we understand this, it has the power to be the most life-changing, influential thing in your life. It'll change you. It'll change you. See, when the gospel moves from our head to our heart, it will change our lives. And so the question for us this morning is, is do we see our relationship with God in light of a marriage relationship? Do we, like John Newton, see ourselves as a wretched sinner? Or are we, we're pretty good. We're pretty good people. Now, we've got to see our wrongdoing. We've got to see how we have committed adultery against God. 
how there is wickedness in our hearts? Are there idols or other things that get in the way? If so, then what we need to do this morning is we need to repent of those things. And repent just simply means to turn from those things, to turn from what we are running to and turn back to God. To find our, our, our rest and our security in Him and what He has done for us. Pray that God would help us to understand His love for us. And let me encourage you this morning, okay? The best way for you to do that, the best way for us to understand what God has done for us is to read it in His Word, right? I mean, it's, it's in here. It's in here. It's for us to go to God's Word and to be in it. Psalm 66.3 says, Because of your steadfast love, it is better than life. Your steadfast love is better than than life itself. Psalm 105 says, For the Lord is good, and His love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. Listen, we've got to be in the Word of God. It comes down to this, man. It's always, when, when you're trying to change something in your life, like you can sit here, you can walk out of this room and you can say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to believe this. I'm, I'm going to believe that, that God loves me. I'm, I'm going to change my life. I'm going to do all these different things. And you can, you can say that until you're blue in the face. You can try to will it all you want. But until there is a heart change, until you recognize that you are a wretched sinner, until you recognize what God has done for you, and you read through the, and you see, man, God's love for me, it's amazing, he pursues me, until the heart is changed. Like, that, that's, it's always, any, anything that's a sin in our life, it's always a heart issue. Do you realize that? It's always a heart issue. If I eat too much... I can say, well, I'm just going to not buy this food. I'm going to stay away from it. I'm going, to, I'm going to try not to do this. Right? It always comes back to a heart. Something in me, something inside of me is wrong. Something is, I'm looking for food. That's my idol. I'm looking for food to fill me, to give me something that I'm not looking to God for. So I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to get in shape. Right? I'm going to will myself to do that. Until you address the heart, until you address the heart, nothing's going to change because it's a heart issue. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you so much. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. God, as we uh, close out this time of our service, God, as we... Uh, do this, I pray, God, that you will just continue to move and work in the hearts of folks here. God, I know that oftentimes we struggle to believe that you love us this way. God, oftentimes we, we, we listen to the voices of self-doubt. And we just allow those things to keep us down. We allow those things to beat us up. Or Father, it could be the other way around. Man, maybe we think we're, we're okay. I'm a good person. God, regardless of, of what, which one it is, I pray that your spirit would just move and that you would convict us. 
God, that you would help us to see that we are wretched sinners and that we need your grace. God, we need your life-changing influence in our lives. So I pray, God, as we um, prepare to sing this next song, as, as the prayer team comes forward and as they're up here, God, or as they're in the back, or uh, God, I, I pray that people will respond. I pray, Father, that if they need encouragement this morning, that they would, they would just let go of the back of their seat and just come forward and just be prayed over, be encouraged. Father, if it's, if it's something, they just need to put their trust in you, God, I pray that they will do that this morning. God, maybe, maybe for so long they put their trust in themselves or they, they trusted their idols, whatever that may be, God. I pray that they will repent of that this morning. God, help us to see you for who you are. God, that you are pursuing us in grace. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you guys stand with us and sing? And the prayer team's going to be up here. Um, I'll be up